You guys, you, you tend to have, like, it's hard for me to know now, because where I live, no kids are coming. There's, like, like two kids that live on our road, and they're not going to go to the four houses. So the kids don't come around our house, and we don't have kids of our own anymore. So I, I don't really follow it as close as, as usual. But if that's the case, or if it's going to be officially in your area on Halloween next week, just want to chime in here, making sure I cover the people that will be doing it over the weekend. Make sure that you're prepared For that, you know, have stuff with you, and if you have little bitty kids that are still of stroller age and you think they're going to walk, bring the freaking stroller anyway, because they'll pick the worst time in the world to go, Daddy, carry me, and you might be tired after a, a night of uh, watching out for other kids and things like that. And make sure you have your flashlights, make sure you're dressed in a way that people in cars can see you and stuff like that, and... Uh, those of you with kids that are a little bit older that want to play soldier or something, make sure they don't do any stupid crap and get themselves shot. It's happened tragically a few times. And make sure that you uh, take a look at the candy. I think the stories of candy being poisoned or having razor blades and crap in it have been grossly over-exaggerated, but there are twisted people out there. So just a timely little message of preparedness. It's not always about the zombie apocalypse. Sometimes it's about really basic stuff. Also want to give you a little Jack Spearco kick in the ass update. That means that the month's about to end. There's two months left in 2012. Another year's about to end. Are you working for liberty? I hope so, because tick, 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 the clock is moving, and that means you're either sliding toward or away from liberty. The choice is yours. I hope you're building it in your own life. Now, with that out of the way, it's Friday, 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 and that means it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Now, let me tell you, if you call in right now, you're going, I'm listening to this, I'm going to call this guy and tell him what I think. I will hear you probably next week or two. I'll hear you because it's not live. It's a podcast. So that's the number you call. Leave your message in two minutes or less. Please, 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 folks. This is so easy if you'll make it easy. Don't give me your details. Don't give me your background. Don't give me anything more than your name and maybe your form handle if you want to do that. Ask your question in two sentences or less, and then give me your details. I promise you your call will go better. you got to trust me. I'm actually becoming a professional at this uh, broadcasting thing uh, with about five years heading for uh, of experience doing it now, and I promise you it'll work better. Before I get to your questions, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today and knock that out in the housekeeping segment. Sponsor of the day number one, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, you got a gun? Great. You got ammo for it? Great. You got a box? Yeah, it's not enough. You need more. Your gun, no ammo, overpriced club. You need lots of ammo. You need ammo to train with. You need ammo to deal with ammo shortages with. If you're a reloader, maybe you want ammo to make new empties so you have brass that you can reload. 
Bulk Ammo has all of the common calibers you can think of. Check them out today. Great pricing. And they do offer a discount to MSB members. So make sure you get your discount from Bulk Ammo in the benefits section of your Members Brigade area if you are indeed a supporting member of the show. Next up today, the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Royal. I call them the original sponsor because they were first. Been with us now Almost four years. That's a long time in the podcasting world. Uh, they're a great supplier of everything you can think of for your prepping needs. Check them out today at prepared.pro. Prepared.pro is the easy way to remember their site. And remember, they have a really awesome program. It's called their Lifetime Discount Buyers Club. And if you are a Safe Castle Discount Buyers Club member, then you have paid them $49. And then for the rest of your life, you get great discounts to their stuff. So it's a great deal. But guess what? If you're a member support brigade member supporting this show at $50 a year, that's one of your benefits for free. So your first year's a dollar, which leads me into my uh, little reminder for you guys about member support brigade. It's $40 this uh, today. And it ends today, and the sale's over. I ran it all week. Discount code is October 12, October 1-2. But I want you to think about this. With Save Castle giving you a $40, $49 membership for free and me giving you a $10 discount, if you join today using the discount code October 12 and uh, you sign up and then you get the free discount membership from, from Save Castle and you use that as, as you need for the rest of your life, I just paid you $9 to become a member. And there are 36 other vendors offering discounts. There's $150 worth of free ebooks. And this will likely be the last sale that I'm going to do in 2012. I might throw something out around Christmas to be nice, but honestly, um, if I do sales all the time, then, you know, nobody buys at the regular price. So, uh, uh, here it is, last day of the MSB. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, your deal's better. So email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. And tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And since you're military or law enforcement, right, or first responders, I expect you to be procedure-oriented. Don't join and then a week later say, I joined and didn't do this, and now can I get the discount? Because it's kind of really difficult at that point. All I can do is tell you how to get it on your renewal. Uh, so do it before you join. All right. Oh, that's knocked out. Ready to take your calls. Let's go ahead and do that now. First call of the day. Hi, Jack. Zach Collins from North Carolina. Appreciate you taking a comment earlier. I have a follow-up question. Um, as a law enforcement officer in North Carolina, I have a question about prepping specific for law enforcement officers uh, here in our state as well as uh, the other 49 states. In our position as law enforcement officers, how would you recommend prepping and doing our job at the same time in the event of a uh, world without law or an excessive rule of law scenario um, in which we are called upon to be the arm of the state in whatever capacity that may mean. Um, I believe listeners who are in a position like myself in law enforcement would uh, do so honorably and would carry out the law. However, how would you recommend we protect our families as well as assets while we are serving? It's a 12-hour shift, 24-hour shift, however long it is. It's a long time to leave our families by themselves. Second off, in that position, is there any way to ethically uh, leverage our position in government, uh, whether it's through um, payment for services or some uh, way of receiving um, uh, uh, 
payment, I guess is the best word, uh, so that we end up in a uh, beneficial position after the collapse or after some kind of uh, period without law and order. Um, that makes any sense. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay, it's a very complex question, and it really has very different dynamics depending on the situation. This is the, this is the first thing I would say to every single law enforcement officer uh, that listens to this show, active duty or prior service, every single member of the military, active duty or prior service that deals with this conflict of what would I do, carry your ass over to the Oath Keepers website today, become a member, take the oath, read the commitment to follow your own oath, and make it part of you intrinsically. Then you will know what to do. Okay? I mean, it's, it's that simple. There are certain things the Constitution says that we are not supposed to do uh, in a law enforcement capacity. And, you know, the Constitution is very clear about that. And that doesn't mean that sometimes you don't have to do very difficult things that you don't want to do. I mean, one of the things that we need to realize when we start talking about, like, you know... Firing on American citizens, it, that happens every day in the law enforcement world. You're, you're, you're responding to a call. There's a person there with a gun that threatens your life or someone else's. You shoot them. And I don't think anybody with a brain has a problem with that. Well, you know, if you end up with riots where people are destroying property, starting fires, beating people to death, law enforcement and or National Guard and military may be called to use lethal force in those situations, and there needs to be the judgment of the individual on site in conjunction with their oath to be sure that this is only done when absolutely necessary and it's not done excessively. And that's a very dangerous world. And to me, when you, you, know, when you become a, an officer, you take an oath. But I think a lot of times people take that oath. It's just like you, know, you, you get your boots, you get your haircut, you get your police academy training, and you take your oath, and it's, it's just part of the process. I think especially a lot of young people, when they first enter military service, law enforcement service, don't really think about what it means. And I think that a lot of the government has pushed it to a point where they don't really want you to think about what it means. They want you to say it, but then they want you to do whatever the hell you're told. So I think that the first advice would be join our Oath Keepers. The next advice is let's look at these two scenarios you laid out. There's excessive rule of law and without rule of law. If there's a world without rule of law, you don't have to worry about going to work because you're just not going to work because there's no police force. And that's what it means. So in a without rule of law scenario, you're going to be looking after your family like everybody else. And we'll get to your for hire question as it relates to that in a moment. The second thing is excessive rule of law. So the riots have started, the crackdown has come, but now the crackdown goes into things that are definitely unconstitutional and not temporary acute measures where, yeah, we're searching people without a warrant, but only in this one area because we think somebody has a bomb here, but they start doing it every, they start to really violate the Constitution in mass. You guys are the ones that have to stop it. You guys, that's part of your preparedness as an officer, uh, as a law enforcement officer, or a military member, to be talking to your fellow members right now and go, look, we can't have this crap where we're just like, we're just not going to do whatever they say, you know, because there are times where, again, you have to act. But we are going to have an agreement among ourselves that when they go too far, we're going to stand. We're going to be the thin blue line, and that blue line is not just between the criminal and the law-abiding citizen, it should also be a thin blue line, or in the military's case, a thin green line, 
between the tyranny of government and the freedom of the individual. And you have to have that in place within your unit. You can't worry about what, the, you know, if you're a local cop, what the state cops are going to do. You, you don't have that influence unless you have a friend over there, right? You worry about your department, your people, and say, look, there's a limit to what we're going to let go on, including a limit to what we're going to let outside law enforcement do in our town. And it's not anything radical. It's the freaking guidebook which is the constitution of your nation and the constitution of your state that you take an oath to. Notice you do not take an oath to the governor or to the president or to a senator or to your police chief or to your department. You take the oath to the document because the document is impartial. So that's the, the ethical side of things, right? Now, it would it be right to hire your services out in one of these scenarios. It depends. It depends. Right now, um, if I go to, now, let's say right before like New Year's or Christmas or Thanksgiving, a lot of times you go into a liquor store, right? And not a, you know, a, a CD joint, but a nice upscale wine shop, liquor store like that in a big city. A lot of times there'll be a police officer either sitting in the front, uh, right outside the front door or just inside the front door in uniform. He's not there because his department sent him there. He's hired his services out and his time off to provide extra security because with the high volume there, it's beneficial and the store person has paid for that security. No problem with that, and I would have no problem with somebody doing something like that in a dangerous time and hiring a, a couple off-duty cops to, to guard their property. It's when hiring creates preferential treatment or selective enforcement that's an ethics breach And frankly, if I have to explain that to a law enforcement officer, which I don't think I do with you, um, I'm talking to the wrong guy. If you need that explained to you, your department did not train you right. They, there, there's no way you get so higher enforcement, selective. Any of that stuff is freaking bribery, and any officer involved in it should be immediately fired and never get a job as high as a mall security officer ever again after that. that that's, so that's that side. In a situation where you're without rule of law, okay, So you've now, you, that means you're not, if we're without rule of law, if we're in a, in a true role situation instead of an e-role situation, then you don't have a job. If you had a job, there'd be a police force. If there was a police force, there'd be some enforcement of the law. So if we go into role for any period of time, and if it's an extent, it's not like a day or two, it's an extended period of time, and you want to then hire yourself as a contract security person or something like that, The fact that you used to be a police officer has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it at all. Now, preparing for a breakdown where there's still things in place and you're having to balance and judge all this stuff and be gone for 10 to 12 hours a day and your family's without you, that's where you need everybody on board with prepping. And you need to make sure that when you leave your home, your wife knows how to defend it. You might, since you have a brotherhood of officers, start pre-planning so that maybe there is combined coordination between a family that has a guy that's off-duty at one shift and a guy that's on-duty at another, sh another shift. Maybe even in some situations that family at certain critical periods doubling up at one house or the other where one of the brother officers or multiple officers who are off-duty are home. It may have to go to that level. It may have to go to that level of family sacrifice. I don't know. But the big thing is you need to make sure that the home is well prepped so that when you're not there, no one needs to leave. 
Because the safest place you'll probably be is staying put in one of these situations, assuming you don't live right in the epicenter of where this crap will be going down, which will primarily be the urban areas and the very close, tightly surrounded suburban areas. If you're anything outside of major metro areas, it's probably going to be best to bug in and stay down. So that's very effective home-based planning and communication between the two of you And that's where things like CB or ham radio maybe come in, in addition to your existing means of communication, because I'm going to tell you flat out, if I'm a, an on-duty officer, and even if my family leaves outside of my jurisdiction, and they're in crises, my family will come first. And I think most people feel that way. And I think that's okay, as long as you're not leaving someone in the middle of being shot. Right? Okay, so that's that's the, the, the other side of that. Um Now, in the end, what I have to tell you, though, is that we're all human beings, and we all have to make our own decisions about how we're going to handle things. But this is the approach I would take. It would be very serious about my oath and an understanding that as a, as a law enforcement officer, when you take somebody's liberty, it's serious business, and you only do it when it's constitutionally justified. I would prepare the officers that I'm best friends with to understand that there may come a day where we have to stand up not against the criminal element but against our own government and not in some radical revolutionary way simply saying we're not going to be doing that because that's not that should not be authorized. You're going to have to explain to us how this is authorized and why we're doing it. You have to be a source of resistance there and you have to have organization for that. Your home has to be well prepared so they can deal without you being there. And as far as contract services, I think that there's clear ethical lines there and you just don't breach them in peace or wartime, if that makes sense. Tough question, long answer. Let's take another one. Jack, hi, this is Jim again in Tennessee. Um, I was listening to your podcast on the Japanese uh, villages and how they use humanure, as we call it today, for fertilizing. And it got me looking into it a little bit, and uh, it looks like um, the biosolids or sewage sludge are used uh, today for fertilizing. And I wanted just to get your comments and thoughts on the possibility of using that to help um, on a larger scale take a piece of land that needed you know up upgrading quite a bit for being able to garden and so on uh, and treating the land using uh, sewage sludge and and whether or not that's a problem with uh, different states regulating it to a point that you can't use it but it'd be glad for you to share just anything you know about that thank you very much Well, it's, it's a question that comes up many times in many different forms or many different concerns, and it, it generally always revolves around compost that's being produced by counties or cities or things like that. And many of the counties that do this do include biosolids as part of uh, what they're composting. Uh, and many also include things like animal manures and trimmings and brush and other things like that. And the reality is it's probably as safe as any other compost to use when we look at those components. It's, it's not those components that generally worry people. It's the additional things. So if, if, you know, sewer sludge is being used, well, we know that human waste is part of that. But when we look at an industrial compost facility where we're composting a hundred cubic yards at a time, 
we're reaching temperatures inside those compost piles, that, which are turned frequently, uh, that a home compost pile will never reach. We're, when we're pushing temperatures way, way up, 160 degrees Fahrenheit, 170 degrees Fahrenheit. I know some piles get that hot, but we're doing it very, very sustainably, and we're getting a very quick, high-intensity uh, uh, heat-cook compost there. And we have all the other components that come in there. My concerns, and this is where Paul Wheat would say, don't use it at all, and I just think it's very short-sighted to think that way, is that other things end up in these industrial composts that are more of a concern. For me, they are primarily things like biocides in the form of herbicides. So the person that brings in the grass clippings and leaves and stuff that might have been hit with Roundup, the person that does something like that, it's somewhat mitigated because if you are spraying something with Roundup, generally it will die. So there's only so much of it there, but there's some of it there to be worried about. Then if we're getting into people using material out of the sewer system, uh, we have certain problems that are becoming problems in other ways manifesting themselves, like people flushing their drugs down the toilet, like their, their, their medications and all once they expire. Or, you know, a lot of older people are on like 400 different medications and when they, when they pass away, some of these folks that are in these end stage of life care, a lot of times their relatives and all don't know what to do with it all. And the simple solution is flush it down the toilet. I don't want to put it in the garbage because, you know, an animal might eat it or somebody might find it or whatever. So I'll just get rid of it that way. And that's something, you know, that can, can end up in there. But there's actually very stringent standards for the way that this stuff is treated. And as far as, you know, regulation not allowing you to use it, if you're getting this, this type of compost, you're probably getting it from a county or city facility. And, and thereby, it's obviously eligible to be used where you're at. Now, if you know of, you know, this is where you could get into something that's a little different. Let's say you live a county over or a city over or a state line over from a facility that's doing this. Could it be that your local government has a restriction that you're not aware of? Possible. Possible. Um, and that might be something you want to check into. But in general, these are coming from government-run facilities and therefore not going to be a big problem with regulation. My overall view of it is very much in league with what Jeff Lawton says. If I make compost from uh, a soybean field, from all the waste from a soybean field, that was grown with Roundup Ready soybeans, and 50% or more of my compost is made with Roundup sprayed shit, I am going to end up with compost that is going to have very difficult growing problems and probably take several years to to treat out. And some of the other kind of niche boutique uh, herbicides that are being used now um, have half-lives as long as seven years. But that's that's a case where actually commercial for, uh, herb, uh, commercial composts being made up for agricultural waste is probably more likely to have higher uh, herbicide residuals in it than something like a city compost facility that may incorporate biosolids as a component of what they're doing. Because, you know, you don't really spray Roundup at the top of the tree that gets trimmed that gets taken to the compost facility. You see, you see how that works. Um, there's probably a whole lot less animal manure included in, in that type of a compost mix. Uh, so there's less pass-through of animals being fed, uh, let's say, uh, you know, things that have been sprayed with 
uh, and carry residual remnants uh, of herbicide. So if I'm going to put a link for Je with the Jeff Lawton video in the show notes today, and what you'll find is that in the composting process itself, so long as we're not talking about you know a, a majority of toxins, there's these, these sprinklings of toxins, they'll get locked up by the composting process and become inert. Now, again, this doesn't supersede something like agricultural waste from a, a, sprayed, a field that was sprayed with atrazine or Roundup. And a lot of times when you get something like that, it won't stunt the growth of everything, right? So if you get something that's been treated with atrazine, which they put on corn, it pretty much doesn't impact grass. So if you're growing corn in that stuff, it, even without it being GMO, it'll probably do fairly well. But turn around and try to grow a tomato or a pepper from the nightshade family, and you've got a totally different situation where you'll get a lot of stunting, and your legumes will always take it the hardest. So those are more my concerns than the sources of the material themselves is what kind of uh, residuals are there. But this is my bigger statement on all this. Where would all of this stuff go? All of this material, all of this waste, all the biosol, where would it all go if the cities and county governments hadn't gotten into the habit now of composting it? You know where it used to go? Our lakes, rivers, and streams, and our groundwater. And now it doesn't go there anymore. This is a mass-scale uh, replication of what was done in feudal Japan at an individual level. It's one of the things they're getting right. And by using it, testing it before it goes on your property, and the way you test it is, I've said this many times, put some in a bucket, grow some beans in it. If beans grow okay in it, it's fine. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, 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 and anything depletes with time so we can re reuse these things regain control of the situation and reduce pollution so i think it's a good thing overall but it's your individual choice what you use on your property let's take another call hello jack this is chris from jan Kleinstown with a question and comment uh question is about lacto-fermentation uh, especially when using dehydrated vegetables for example cabbage for sauerkraut. Uh, seems we had a bumper crop this year and uh, dehydrated a lot. It seems like this answer should be obvious, but it's not. Uh, do lactosabilis survive and reconstitute when introduced to, say, uh, distilled water? I've found nothing on the Internet about this, and I'm just leaving it up to you. Oh, yeah, and the comment. Uh, the comment is, thank you for not poo-pooing all over the uh, high point, C9. Yeah, it's, it's uh, very ugly, and it's uh, very heavy and uh, inexpensive and accurate. And uh, it's not a bad gun for people who want to conceal and carry, or it is a bad gun, actually, for people who want to conceal and carry. It's, it's like holding a brick in your pocket, but it's, it does what it's supposed to do, Um I thank you for not poo-pooing on that, and uh, that's just about it. It's not slim. It's not bold. It's just, you know, does what it's told, and it points and shoots, and it's very accurate. Um, so thank you for not poo-pooing on those things that, uh, you know, people who can't afford the higher end uh, can get. So with that, thank you for all you do. Appreciate your show, and bye. All right, so on the uh, question about lactobacillus um, surviving the dehydration process and, like, taking a whole bunch of dehydrated cabbages and making sauerkraut out of it, I don't think that's your problem. Uh, I've never tried it, but my guess is 
based on my experience using dehydrated vegetables, which I think are really great for some things and not really great for other things, you'll get very poor quality sauerkraut. Not because it won't ferment, but because it's been dehydrated, it's been rehydrated, it's not going to be crisp. So like if you take cabbage and it's dehydrated cabbage and you're making soup that calls for some cabbage in it, which is a great use for cabbage. Uh, a vegetable beef soup with a couple cups of shredded cabbage in it is, is really good. It's something maybe, you know, if you've never tried it before, it's a good use for your cabbage. Um, and it, it's pretty good. But when we cook cabbage that way, we cook it down, it gets soft, et cetera. It's not real crunchy, right? When, when we make sauerkraut, we want it to be nice and crunchy. Well, when you rehydrate cabbage, uh, all the dehydrator advocates that say it's just like it was, it's not. It's really not. It's, it's limp. It's okay. There's things that it's good for, and there's things that it's not good for. I think if you ferment uh, rehydrated cabbage into sauerkraut, it'll, it'll have a sour taste. Uh, it'll be okay, but it'll be limp instead of that nice crunchy character that we really want in a sauerkraut. So that's why I wouldn't do it. Will the lactobacillus survive? I don't know. My instinct is they will. Um, but, you know, it's really easy to just throw a couple tablespoons of whey into your fermenter, uh, which is full of lactobacillus, uh, which you can make, you know, as a byproduct of yogurt cheese. Uh, or, honestly, if you, if you buy yogurt, you know, a little bit that floats, a little bit of liquid that floats to the top of it, that's loaded with lactobacillus. And you put a few drops of that into your fermenter, and you're not going to have any problems, even if there's not much on the uh, vegetables in question. So... It's, you can do it. I just don't think, you know, and try it, you know, make a small, you know, for, don't try to do a whole big giant 10 liter, you know, crock like, you know, a lot of us use. Get yourself a quart jar and do a quart of it and see, and if it comes out great, let us know. I'd, I'd, I mean, if that works, that's awesome. I just, I just don't think it will, you know, that's, that's my gut. Anybody that's done any fermentation with anything that's previously been dehydrated and had good results or bad results, let us know in today's show notes. On the High Point C9, yeah, I'm not going to crap on a gun that does what it's supposed to do. It's a heavy, ugly gun, but it shoots as accurate as anything else, its size and caliber. Uh, it works. People that say they're jamomatics are full of crap. They've never shot one. People say they blow apart are full of crap. They saw one gun that somebody broke somehow. Um, they're one of the more reliable, cheap guns ever made. They're heavy. They don't carry well. Um, if I had a choice between carrying a C9 and carrying a sharp stick, I would make it work. I mean, and for some people, maybe that's all you can afford, you know, because you can get one for like 129 bucks, brand new. Um, for a nightstand or something like that, for a home defense weapon, I think a shotgun or a carbine is a much better weapon. Some people just aren't comfortable with that. It works for that. Uh, for something to just take out and shoot and have fun with, it works for that. Um, anybody that crafts on that gun is an elitist, you know, that just really doesn't, really doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, I'm, I'm sorry if that's you, and I'm sorry if that pisses you off, and I'm sorry if you're Mr. Glock 19 and everything else is crap, but it, it's just an elitist, arrogant attitude. It, it's, it's a tool that has certain things it's usable for and other things that it's really not, you know, very much made for. The same person that'll say that will likely go, Wow, isn't that, you know, old Swedish Mauser beautiful? You know, what a great, well-made gun. But, you know, if it's still in military garb and all, how, how practical is it? It's probably not. It's longer than the day is, you know. Uh, it's heavy. 
Yeah, you don't want to scratch. I mean, so I mean, it's not really a great deer deer hunting tool. It's a great caliber for shooting deer with, but you know, a, a lightweight, you know, modern sporting rifle is going to be a much better hunting implement. And consequently, you don't see a lot of people in the woods with Swedish Mausers. And when you do, they've probably been cut down and sporterized because it has a place and you know that it's, it's it's you know does a good job. My Ford F three fifty is a great truck. It's not really convenient when we take it into town and I have to park it in a parking lot with small parking places. We always end up parking out, you know, at a distance. My Volkswagen Jetta, you can parallel park that thing between a couple motorcycles and, you know, out in front of a bar if you wanted to. It, but it won't, I mean, everything has a purpose. That's what we got to keep in mind instead of just crapping on things. All right, uh, great call. Let's take another question. Jack, thank you for taking my call. Justin Wave here, my little goat farm in Edgefield, South Carolina. I have one question that I I'm always trying to think of: How can I produce power alternatively on my homestead? I have a windmill. Um, I'm thinking of combining solar um, panels to a battery bank. And with my farm, one thing that I have no, you know, lack of is animal manure. And if I, what I'm thinking is taking a 55-gallon drum, a few of them, maybe even up to 15, even 20, so they can be pulled in and put out as needed, but filling them with the animal dung and uh, producing methane and using PVC tubing and whatnot to put that into a uh, container in its own right and having that power generator also as needed charge that bank of batteries. Maybe this is a Stephen Harris question. I don't know. Maybe you have the answer. But it's just as far as pulling all resources that I have available to me. You know, another thing that I think of is even one of the things we may have forgot about is steam locomotives, and they're powered off using steam pressure to also power uh, generators to produce uh, energy. And, you know, even my septic system, can I somehow tap the methane that's coming off of that out of the ground and capture it and use it for power? That's my question. Anyways, hope all's well. Thank you for everything you do. I do enjoy your show. I listen each and every day, and I look forward to those emails. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Maybe this is a Stephen Harris question, he says. Not maybe, definitely. Uh, this is one I definitely threw over the fence to uh, our alternative expert, alternative energy expert on the expert panel, Mr. Stephen Harris. So, hey, Steve, take this one for me and uh, let us know what your thoughts are. Justin in South Carolina, thank you for calling in. How can you produce power on your little farm? Apparently, you say you have a lot of manure, and that's a good thing because it makes for excellent biogas. I can try to keep this answer short because I did an entire show on just biogas. It's my first show, show number one, and it's at www.solar1234.com where I keep all of my TSP shows and all of my links to answers from panel questions. I keep my lists and photos of things I talk about there so you can go find them in your local stores. Now, if you really want the details on biogas, go listen to my show number one at solar1234.com. Now, a quick review on biogas, because some of you are going to want to know this answer. Biogas comes from anaerobic digestion of manure and other materials. Anaerobic means the bacteria are working without air, which takes about three days for them to get rid of the air, and then the batch goes anaerobic and it'll digest for about three weeks and produce gas for you. There's lots of details. Again, go listen to show number one. 
This will produce gas as a mixture of about 60 to 70% methane and about 30 to 40% CO2. Methane is the same thing as natural gas. It burns fine. Uh, in the 70s, the Chinese had over 40 million gas fires running. Who knows how many they have now? You can uh, run the gas right to a Coleman mantle on the end of a pipe, and it'll light up, and you'll have illumination. Uh, if you want something a little fancier, just go Google, go and Google Lehman's Hardware. That's L-E-H-M-A-N-S. Lehman's Hardware, and go to their site, and they have mantle lamps that mount on your wall and run on natural gas, and this will work for biogas. Now, for biogas, you want to use natural gas appliances, natural gas lamp, natural gas stove, natural gas refrigerator. In fact, uh, in one of my previous panel questions, someone called and asked about natural gas refrigerators, and I have a link on Solar1234 to the company that makes natural gas refrigerators and freezers and where you can buy them. Uh, they're made by a company called Crystal Cold, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L. Justin, a 55-gallon drum is just great for starting out. I have an entire book with step-by-step plans on how to make biogas with a 55-gallon drum. It's called Biogas 1 and 2, and I'll put a link to it at the bottom of Solar 1234, but you don't have to go buy it because I'm going to send you a copy of the book for free. In fact, I'm going to send you both books for free, Biogas 1 and 2 and Biogas 3. Uh, in fact, anyone that calls into the panel from now on with a question, and if one of my books or DVDs has the answer into it, not only will I give you the answer on the air, but I'll send you a book or a DVD to help you out. Your 55-gallon drums are going to work for starting out, but you're going to have to think about the labor and putting the manure into the drum, adding water, make a slurry. It's about 95% water, 5% manure. Then you'll have to keep them warm, as much above 75 as possible. So South Carolina, that won't be a problem. Minnesota, it would be. Uh, they'll hardly ever get too warm unless you're going to have it get above 100. You don't need to worry about them. And for as far as connecting units up, I'd use a garden hose over using PVC pipe. Just have it going into a barb fitting with a hose clamp from drum to drum to drum. It's a lot easier than using something that is rigid like PVC. I also suggest uh, plastic barrels over metal barrels, but use whatever you have access to that's cheap or free, metal or plastic. Of course, you are 100% going to want an open top drum. I don't think you want to be putting all that manure through a 3-inch bunghole. That could get a little messy. Don't forget that when it's done making the gas in about three weeks, you'll have what you'll have left is an, an incredible fertilizer, very high in nitrogen content. Once you've proven to yourself that it works, then you'll probably want to make an in-ground unit. Dig a big hole and brick it in and make an in-ground cistern. That way, it's a continuous gas producer. You put manure in on one side every day, and immediately you get fertilizer out on the other side, and it's always making gas for you 24-7. You don't have to batch it up like you do with the drums. This is detailed in our book, Biogas 3, that I'm going to send to you. As far as getting gas off your septic system, not really. I know a lot of people will probably say you're full of it, Justin, but I don't think you and your family are full of it enough to make enough gas from it to, for it to be worthwhile to tap into your entire septic system. Uh, don't mess with things that are working. Now, if you were a famous Duggar family and had 19 kids and counting, you might be making enough. Uh, but for now, I think you're going to have to rely on your goats and other farm animals. So in regards to your questions on steam engines, no, no, no. Steam engines and the boilers are an issue. There's one guy in the USA who makes steam engines. He does it right. Uh, he's in Missouri. Uh, a one-horsepower steam engine, which that means it's less than 750 watts maximum output. It weighs 50 pounds, costs $1,200, and that does not include the boiler. It's not even painted. You need to take it apart to paint it to, to prevent rust. 
He has a three horsepower engine, which would make just over two kilowatts maximum. Has to be shipped by freight. It's heavy. It's $2,400 and this will use about 20 pounds of wood per hour. It has a significant amount and that doesn't include the amount of water it's going to use per hour, which is a lot. Keep in mind, this does not include a boiler. You can't buy one. You have to make it and you have to get his video on how to make it. Then you better know how to weld so you can make one. And then you still have safety concerns. Remember, steam engines require a lot of fuel and a lot of water. They're not magical little machines. The ones you see at farm shows just sitting there running and turning the flywheel, they got no load on it. They're really not working. They're not grinding grain or making electricity. That is completely different than sitting there at idle. It's like your car going down the road at 80 miles per hour versus your car sitting there in the driveway idling. Also, steam engines are very, very inefficient. They are less than 5% efficient, okay? A diesel engine in your in your car, a modern one, is going to be 40% efficient, a fuel cell is going to be around 40% efficient. Yeah, diesels beat fuel cells. That's a whole nother show. So if you're going to run anything of any size, you'll need a three-horsepower uh, steam engine. That's $2,400 plus the cost of a boiler. And you're going to have to weigh that against using that same money to buy solar panels and the wind generator. But if you, anyone out there, okay, if you're still really, really excited about steam engines, go Google Mike Brown Solutions and you'll find his steam engine pages. Now, if you really want to make power um, on your farm, there's gasification, which is turning biomass directly into a gas with heat. People, as I've told you before in previous shows, the people who in this world, the only people in the world who do it right is All Power Labs. That's A-L-L-P-O-W-E-R-L-A-B-S.com. The guy that runs is Jim Mason. You want the power pallet. They're in Berkeley, California. It's computer controlled, 10 kilowatt system with a gasifier. It's all ready to go. It gets shipped to you on a pallet. All you have to do is add the fuel and turn it on. And a 10 kilowatt system costs about $17,000. And as I did on a previous show all about energy, that is a lot cheaper than solar panels. So, uh, Justin, thanks for calling in. This is Steve Harris for the extra expert panel. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Uh, great answer from Steve. Remember, we have a, a large expert panel uh, out there. If you have a question for any of them, Tim Glantz from Old Grouch, Steve Harris from USH2.com and Solar1234.com, uh, Joe Nobody on security, Frank Sharp on, on security and firearms as well, uh, and all of our other expert panel members, Paul Wheaton, if you have something really complex with permaculture, uh, make sure when you call the Think Line, as soon as you're done, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put uh, expert panel question in the subject line and tell me who you, where you called from. Uh, so I called from number XYZPDQ, whatever the number is, and the question's for so-and-so. And I push that to the top of the priority queue and send it out and get us an answer. Remember your questions on, uh, on uh, cooking, Chef Keith Snow. So uh, the panel's there. Make sure you're using them. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Derek from Arizona. Uh, simple question. I just bought a new laptop, and I'm wondering, uh, how do I best preserve the life of the battery? Is it better to let it uh, drain down, use the battery until it's almost empty, and then recharge it? Or is it better to keep it plugged in uh, and only use the battery when absolutely necessary? Thanks a lot. Bye. 
That's more like a tech question for Kim Commando or something I could throw over to Stephen Harris and let him explain voltage and amps and all kinds of crap for 20 minutes to come up with a, an answer that's probably better than I'm going to give. But I'm going to give you this, the simple answer. Don't overthink it and don't run it down to zero power. Um, when you get down to like 20% battery power, plug it back in. Um, use it once in a while, at least every week or two. If your, your computer's constantly plugged in, go ahead and unplug it and run it and use the battery some. It's not good for it to just stay in this constant charge state. It's good for it to be used some. Don't worry about memory. There, uh, people were really concerned at one time about, you know, don't, you know, run it down to half charge and then charge it back up and run it because you'll create this memory window for it. The new uh, lithium ion laptop batteries don't have that problem and just rock on. It's probably the best way. If you really wanted to preserve the battery, the way to, you know, you could do that would be to run it down to about 50% power. Put it in a nice, pretty little foil bag and set it on the shelf somewhere, and and take it out every couple of weeks, charge it up, and use it, and 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 you know don't store it real, real full charged or real, real empty charged, and don't use it very often. If you're not using it, you're not you know you're not eating away at its life expectancy. The problem with that is when you most need it, it's not there. And, and I think that is a, is an issue. And I think that with modern laptop batteries, the best course of action is simply to use our machines. I will say that it makes a ton of sense that when you're not using it, shut it down. Don't just leave it running and close the thing and hibernate it or whatever. Shut it off. Um, and while it is off and it's not drawing power, most modern machines will never overcharge that battery. You can sit there and it basically just keeps it charged. And since it's not drawn much down, if you're using it regularly, it's not really putting much into it or losing any from just a, you know, a standing discharge. Uh, there would be nothing wrong with the added step of it's fully charged, it's off, unplug it. Uh, there'd be nothing wrong with that at all, but it's probably not necessary. Somebody's going to probably give 15 reasons why I'm wrong. Um, with modern laptop batteries, I would say the best course of action if you really want uh, to make sure that the battery lasts as long as the machine, buy a backup battery and every week swap them out, A and B, A and B, A and B. And I think in most instances, you'll find that those batteries now will last long enough that by the time they're not going to work for you real well anymore, you're going to want a new machine. Um, and this does have you know, preparedness applications because our computers are a source of information, communication, and entertainment while maybe the rest of the grid's down. Even if the Internet's not available, we can play DVDs for the kids and things like that, a very low-draw device with battery backup. So uh, it does meet the preparedness criteria. That's why I answered it. Um, I don't stress this one, and all I can tell you is that's the way we run our machines at the house. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Dennis here from the state of West Virginia. Uh, we have an area of our yard that we use for our vegetable garden. It's about 25 feet square. Uh, we didn't plant anything last year, but we'd like to start again next year. Uh, but we've recently relocated several feet of topsoil into this spot, and it's made a once-sloped spot severely graded. Uh, we'd like to build a retaining wall to smooth out the grade. Uh, what are your thoughts about using railroad ties for this type of project? Uh, we searched online and found different opinions about whether or not the creosote would leach into the soil. Uh, will separating the wall with some sort of plastic sheeting help, or should we consider something else altogether? Uh, cost is always a factor, and any advice would be appreciated. Thanks much for all you do.
this is one where the granola-chewing environmental purist says, Oh, God, no, I would never eat anything that came in contact with a railroad tie and then breathes in 50,000 million toxins a day in the general air. Uh, so we have to temper the reality on the ground with some common sense when we look at this. Here's the deal on this. Um, the first issue is that creosote will leach out of wood that it's you know that's been treated with it and it will do so very heavily initially and then it will slow down and it will slow down to a trickle and it will slow down to almost nothing because there ain't much left but there's some bound in the wood that helps to preserve it at that point and this is a multi-year process Most times when you're buying railroad ties, they're reclaimed railroad ties, so they were sitting out somewhere in the open, uh, you know, environment for years, maybe decades, and there just ain't that much left there to worry about. So if you're buying ties that are like new or relatively new and you, like, it sits in the sun and you can see crap weeping out of it, I would not use that, period. With stuff that's older and aged out, I would use it, but it would not be my first choice. It's still an issue, but it's a much mitigated issue. Using it in the methodology that you're talking about, we're also mitigating it further. We're not talking about building a raised bed surrounded on a flat terrace by railroad ties. We're talking about building a retaining wall so that everything that is being grown is upgrade from the railroad ties and the standard way that we're going to have any of the leaching material flow once it's into the soil is down and away. So that also is very, very effective. Applying a plastic layer, yes, that's definitely going to reduce the amount of um, leaching that can come back into the soil anyway. And it's a good practice as a vapor barrier and it's going to extend the life of the wood anyway because it's not going to have most moist soil sticking straight up against it. In fact, it might be the case that depending on how big it's going to be and how cheap you can find it, that something and how, you know, how wide it's going to be. So maybe you can buy like uh, an 8 by, by 12 uh, pond liner, but if you're only going to have four feet of, uh, of or less, you can maybe cut that in half and maybe use pond liner, which is much more longer life, much more durable, and would extend the life of the system and further reduce your concerns about seepage in. And those, those liners of that size aren't real, real expensive. And if they're buried in cover from UV light, they're going to last 25 to 40 years, which is probably as long as those railroad ties are going to last, considering they're probably 20 or 30 years old or older if they're reclaimed ties anyway. So you're looking at a system with a really good life expectancy at that point, and your concerns are mitigated. If you had an option to use creosote-treated lumber or pressure-treated lumber, like new landscaping timbers treated with the new version of pressure treatment, which I find to be almost no concern at all, not completely, I would probably go with those because I think they're less of a concern than creosote. Um, it, 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 it's a, it, you know, six and one half a dozen the other. An ideal retaining wall would be built out of rock or concrete. It's permanent. It's going to have no problems with any type of toxicity. Insects can't get into it. It looks great, but it's a lot more expensive. So my order of choice here would be modern pressure-treated lumber, like landscaping timbers, 
then railroad ties, then a hardscape like rock or concrete, uh, with that being the best, right? So uh, I'm sorry, so I've got that back. My first choice would be rock or concrete. My second choice would be landscape timbers. My fourth choice, or my third choice would be the uh, the railroad ties. But I wouldn't fail to use any of them. And certainly if, if you had that constructed, and I came to visit you, and you were serving up veggies with dinner that were grown in that garden, I wouldn't hesitate for a second to eat it. I really wouldn't. And we learn a lot about what's actually toxic by how well our plants grow. Plants tell us, right? So if we've done something really wrong, your plants are not going to do well. They're just not. Uh, so we learn a lot from that as well. Not that there can't be some uptake of some things, but uh, my, my point here is that there are people that worry so much about minuscule amounts of toxins in something that's a thousand times better for us than what we can get from a store shelf. And ignore the fact that you're literally walking through swimming in a daily soup of toxins far greater than anything like that. It doesn't mean that we don't do what we can to mitigate it at every circumstance. Again, if money's not an object, I'm going to be putting in a rockscape because not only do I mitigate the toxins, but I have a permanent structure that will never need any real maintenance, not while I'm kicking and screaming anyway. Right, But it doesn't mean that we can't use these other options. I wouldn't hesitate to do it, but I would do a cost-comparative analysis with it against modern pressure-treated uh, landscape timbers and see which one works better for you. And with the amount of grade you have, you may find that just from a construction process that, that uh, railroad ties are the way to go. Just make sure you're getting reclaimed, not new ties, and that's probably not an issue because... That's part of why they're so affordable. Uh, and again, consider a good solid vapor barrier and up to it, including something like uh, the material done for uh, uh, ponds. You might even contact a company that does ponds for people, large uh, lined ponds. A lot of times the ponds, they have to trim the liner off. It might be that if you contact a few companies that are in the landscaping business that do that kind of work, Uh, and ask them, they might be able to provide you their trimmings for free. That might be a brand new resource for people for other projects as well. Because when you think about it, like a two-foot-wide, 12-foot-long strip of, uh, of uh, pond liner, those guys are probably throwing that away. And that's a great root barrier. There's a lot of things that can be done with that. So it's just a thought off the cuff. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Ellis from Massachusetts. And uh, I just joined the Air Force. And I was wondering if you had any advice on what I should be doing with uh – My money. Uh, I have no real experience with uh, financial matters or anything, so any advice you could give would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you do, man. Uh, I'm going to answer this question purely as though we're dealing with the surplus of cash. So other prepping things, and there's only so much you need to do in the Air Force, especially if you're a single guy anyway. Uh, while you're there, and some of the best things you could be doing is laying cash down so when you get out, whether it's a four-year short-term or a 20-year retirement, Uh, you have a significant amount of cash to do the things that you need to do in the civilian world to care for yourself as good as the government's caring for you now. So cash. And that's where I'm going to tell you to go. Young men and women that have just joined the military or are serving in the military, you have an opportunity to do two things right now. Party like there's no tomorrow. Have a good time and piss away all your money. And come out of the military with nothing in your pocket and say, well, those were like college years for me. Or to realize the incredible opportunity that you have right now where you don't have to worry about feeding yourself, putting a roof over your head, or in many cases, to, to a large degree, even clothing yourself. 
Uh, in many cases, no real need of individual transportation at all. I, for the, the, the two years I was in Panama, I never owned a vehicle. Um, it wasn't necessary. Uh, between cabs, the few places I needed to go, and a military vehicle to get from the, the barracks to the motor pool or what have you, or if you're deployed, you're deploying with vehicles, it wasn't necessary. And that means that, you know, you these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids in the military that are there for four or five years, you should be able to save half your pay. And I would say until you have at least twenty-five dollars to $30,000 in cash, you don't have a problem with what to do with it. Just put it somewhere that you ain't going to spend it and blow it and piss it away. Cold cash. And here's why. You know, if the financial liars are saying, you need to be investing in an IRA for the long haul. That first twenty or thirty thousand dollars, when we look at the effect of the interest rate on it over twenty or thirty years, it's not that big of a growth component. And if you have that kind of cash when you get out of the military and decide you want to buy a house, and you end up using half of it as a down payment on the house, and you get a better loan because of it, and you live debt free because of it, well, you're going to have plenty of money to save for your retirement. If there ever is such a thing as a modern retirement, by the time those of us who are my age and younger get to that 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 particular milestone in our life, and I think modern retirement is being phased out, and I don't think it's completely because of you know the banking elitists and the government destroying the economy. I think that people are realizing that modern retirement is a failed experiment. Modern retirement is I get a check for the rest of my life to do nothing, and I go around and play golf and canasta and visit the grandkids and buy a motorhome and, and, and don't really do anything productive anymore. That's not what most people end up doing, but that's the dream everybody's working for. And a lot of people find at 65, 67, 68, 70, whenever it is they finally pull the plug on that, they go, I don't like this. I need something to do. So I think re retirement is turning more into people volunteering in communities, volunteering in their churches, taking small part-time incomes, uh, moving more into the multifamily situation, multi-generation families again. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, if we look at the way you know retirement used to be, retirement was dad got old enough that he, he wasn't able to work the farm real heavy anymore and took over things like taking care of the tractor. And one of the boys took over the farm. And, and that can happen in not just farming, but in many different things as people fall back to entrepreneurship as being more reliable than conventional employment. And I think with more and more, we're seeing a lot of that whole concept of I'm just going to go buy a house on a golf course in Phoenix in a gated community go away. And, and I don't think we're losing anything if it does. I think it's, you know, paying people to do nothing I, I don't see as being a very good idea. Now, I'll take that the wrong way. I mean, these seniors that put all this money into Social Security, I think they should get their money back in return on their investment because let's be clear about what you're doing with Social Security. You're loaning the government money. You want me to fix Social Security? Here you go. Without privatizing it and all we're going to loot. No, here's how Social Security would work. Your money for your Social Security payments would go into a holding account, and at the end of every fiscal year, each person's money and the employer match with it would buy U.S. government bonds, right? Instead of just going into a slush fund. There'd actually be a bond attached to it with a, with a published interest rate. And that bond, once you reach retirement age, those bonds would be prorated to a retirement age. And that retirement age should probably be about 65 years of age. 
And that person can start cashing those bonds in one at a time, three at a time, 50 at a time, whatever it is, and pay no damn tax on it at all. It ain't income, right? It's a, you, you would pay taxes on it based on the gains only and at the corporate tax rate, which is about 15%. All right? So that's, that's how, and those, and it would be very easy to calculate the bond based on maturity and which is income and which is base. And that means the government would be directly responsible to each individual for the savings they've done in a government-sponsored retirement account. And the government would have to pay a market rate, whatever interest rates are at the time. I know they're artificially low right now. Something could be done with those types of bonds to fix that a little bit, like inflation plus two with a cap you know, on some level so that the, you know, it doesn't go into exorbitant interest rates. And then the government would actually be you know, accountable to the individual. And the individual could take a lump sum or take a long term, but that ain't going to happen. So we got to start thinking that way for ourselves. So I think the big thing that you young service people need to be doing is just saving money. Just save cash. Get a good bank account somewhere. Maybe get two in two different places, right? And make one a little harder to get to than the other so it's a little less tempting and put the majority of your savings there. Keep some of it closer and keep some cash. Keep some cash on hand. Locked up, they give you a wall locker and a foot locker, you know. I mean, that's a start for a few hundred bucks. Uh, but maybe get a, a local uh, safe deposit box or something like that as well. Keep a couple thousand dollars, hard cash you can get your hands on. That's what I would do. And until you get 20, 30, 40 grand in cash in this stage in your life, don't worry about IRAs. Don't worry about any of that crap. If you're staying in the military 20 years, there's your IRA. There's your retirement. Then you've got a real opportunity to hold cash. And when, when you come out, you know, and it, I'm not saying you can't invest in CDs and some other things to improve your interest rate and your return, but that's something I can't do because I say all the time I don't give financial advice. This isn't really financial advice I'm giving you. This is what I would do in your situation. I would save cash like crazy. I would occupy my time. A lot of times in the military you can get free college courses and stuff like that. I would take all of that shit I could get. I would leave myself with no time to blow my money. Uh, at least for the first four or five years of service if you're going to stay full-time. If you're going to stay full-time, that will um, further your career. And if you're going to get out in four or five years, then it's only four or five years, and you need to go hard with having a real nest egg when you come out. Uh, let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Phil from Ohio, uh, Polyam in the forums. I had a quick question about uh, economics and specifically how you explain to someone from a preparedness and economic standpoint why they should not run up a bunch of unsecured debt prior to a collapse. I understand the moral and ethical issues around fraud and that sort of thing, and I understand um, the risk uh, argument from the standpoint of you're essentially betting on failure, and that's not what you want to do. But the question I was presented with was why not leverage unsecured credit lines like a, you know, a $25,000 limit credit card uh, to purchase a bunch of durable goods and infrastructure and other wealth that essentially can't be tracked or confiscated and then simply default on it or declare bankruptcy when the financial system collapses. Um, I know you've said many times in the past how important it is to eliminate unsecured debt in particular as quickly as possible before things start to change here. But I can't recall the specific rationale you presented behind it, so I'm hoping you can help uh, provide some more clear-cut answers that we can give to people because it seems kind of counterintuitive to most people that are operating in the current monetary paradigm. Thanks for the show, Jack. I look forward to your answer. Well, you've answered the biggest part of the answer for yourself. You don't know when stuff's going to collapse. All right? So let's just say that there is some loophole to get out of this better than average during a collapse. But, 
Your collapse comes in five years and the creditors take all your money and destroy your life in two or three. See? I mean, that, that's just the basics. But here's the other thing. This fantasy that we know what a financial collapse will be like and when I default on the debt, it'll be like declaring bankruptcy is today. You don't know that that's the case. You don't have any idea what a predatory government and a predatory financial elite system will do as they create a revaluation of the currency. You don't know. Just because they revalue the currency in a way that benefits them at the national debt level doesn't mean they'll do it in a way that's going to benefit you at the individual debt level. And here's the reality. It's never worked for anybody anywhere. Find somebody in Argentina whose economy collapsed, devalued at a rate of 4 to 1 over the first year that used credit cards before the collapse and benefited from it. Find one for me. Find me one. There ain't one. Because it doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. Um, this concept that, well, it'll be so bad nobody will have to know. They'll come get your, they're going to hold you accountable. It could very well be. Watch, watch me, watch me how I spin this. Government goes into financial disarray. We get a collapse. We blame the bankers. We blame Wall Street. We blame all the usual suspects and the rich people. In the end, we also blame the people that ran up all these debts that can't pay their bills. And we say that everybody should pay. Then we print a bunch of money and stuff it into the banking system. And we say the bankers paid back their part. The financially elitist paid back their part. What about all these people that skipped out on their debts? They didn't... They didn't repay their part. They're debt criminals. Can you see the people that pretty much kept their nose clean in all this and didn't? You know, they lost a lot, but they didn't go into it with $20,000 or $30,000 or $40,000 in credit card debt. They didn't have a house they couldn't afford. They didn't have cars they couldn't afford. The majority of Americans being told that, these people are just as responsible, and, and they owe money. They need to pay. You could end up in hawk with wage garnishments for the rest of your life. Seriously. I mean, it's just, it's just that simple that that's one of the possible outcomes. And is it likely? I don't know. And I'll tell you why I don't know. Because nobody knows what's going to happen, including me. And my basic statement here is, is this. And I don't mean this to the caller. I mean to the people asking you the questions. There's an old statement that there's no such thing as a stupid question. Whoever came up with that never answered any freaking questions because it's just a stupid freaking question. Well, I'll just go out, take my MasterCard and buy $25,000 worth of stuff, and then when the shit hits the fan, I'll have it, and then they can do... What if you did that in 2008? How would that be working for you right now? We don't have any idea what... You know, 2012 to 2016 has in store for us financially. You have no idea what these people are going to pay, you know, pull next. Um, it, it, honestly, if you have to explain that to somebody, you're probably talking to somebody that's beyond help. At least at that point, they may come around later in life and realize through, you know, stupid taxation, uh, which is what Dave Ramsey calls it when you do stupid things with money and you end up having to pay for it. You pay enough stupid tax, you stop being stupid. It's one place where taxing behavior works because it's free market taxation. You do stupid shit with your money long enough and pay enough stupid tax, you'll stop being a dumbass flat out. So that person may come around later, but the person that's really saying that, you know what I would say? You know what? You're right. Just take your, you know what? 
Since, since you're not going to pay the bills anyway, let me go. You got twenty-five grand. Buy me five thousand dollars worth of shit on your credit card, and, and you get the other twenty. Let's go. Let's go. Let's head it cheaper than dirt if you live in Fort Worth right now. Let's go buy some guns. Let's go buy some ammo. Let's go do it. Let's go spend your money, and let's not. Well, I don't want to take you. With, don't worry about it. You're not going to pay the bill anyway. Can't you get another one of those cards? Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you go get another card and give me that one? And I'll use your card and you use your other card and let's go spend the money. Let's go do it. It'll be great. You're not going to pay the bill anyway. Why are you worried? Well, I'm going to have to pay the bill. Aha. Uh -huh. Now, if you can't connect the dots from there, my friend, you're on your own. Goodbye, go out. I mean, seriously, there are stupid-ass ideas and stupid-ass questions, and that's one of them. And the way you explain it is, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were that stupid. If you want to behave stupidly and unethically, go ahead, don't ask me to endorse your moronic, dumbass, stupid decision. And when you end up in a world of shit and there's consequences to your stupid behavior, don't ask me to pay your stupid tax for you, Mr. Dumbass. Goodbye, go out. Now, that might be a little harder if it's your brother or something like that, but the reality is... That's the truth. That's the truth. I'll go buy all my prepping goods with $25,000 from MasterCard Inc. and wait for the shit to hit the fan is probably one of the dumbest freaking things I have heard in all my years in this industry. The freaking, it's up there with when the shit hits the fan, I'm bugging out to Walmart. It's right there. It's just as stupid. It's, in fact, it, it's worse. I'll tell you why it's worse. The plan to bug out to Walmart only ends up hurting the guy that says it if society crashes to the point where it's his only choice left and he goes there and figures out everybody already did that and there's nothing left and it's a very dangerous place to be because people are burning shit down. It only hurts him if society crashes. The idiot that does it with MasterCard or Visa will suffer if nothing goes wrong, and will still likely suffer if everything goes wrong. It is the dumbest idea I have ever heard. And if you think a breakdown will be like Patriots, the coming collapse from James Rosalie Rawls, you are not a student of history. Your debts will not be forgiven, the financial system will not go away, and the people running your government will not get on a plane and go to Belgium and leave everything behind. It ain't going to happen. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. Uh, this is Jason Perry in Somerville, South Carolina. My question for you today is related to uh, living uh, in, in a community, okay, and specifically uh, as it relates to homeowners associations. Now, we are uh, considering purchasing a lot, actually two lots. It will give us 10 acres total. It is a... It is a uh, kind of out-in-the-country development, but it is a gated community. There's going to be a 100 lots in the community, uh, but they're all bigger acreage lots. Now, there will, of course, be a homeowners association and some rules, uh, basically to prevent people from putting trailers uh, or, or, you know, shacks and shanties out there and devaluing all the property. Um, and, and certainly, I, I, don't, I don't really like homeowners associations. But... With regards to needing to be part of a community in the event that it all, uh, you know, hits the fan, so to speak, how do you reconcile uh, not wanting to be in an HOA uh, with the fact that most communities 
that you know would help you get through an event are going to have some kind of an HOA or a group set of rules uh, that you that you comply with. I mean, I would like to be in an area where I've got 10 acres of land, but I've also got a hundred other people around me somewhat like-minded. Also, concerning the fact that if I've got a hundred acres out in the middle of nowhere, way away from people. I'm sort of a lone ranger. I'm out there all by myself, and if I need someone to, to rush over to my house to help me in the middle of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a catastrophe, I've got no one. I've just got me and my family. And so how, how, what's your thoughts on that? How do you reconcile that? Thanks for your time, and thanks for what you do. Bye. I have one word of advice on HOAs, and it is no. Don't do it. Don't go there. Don't buy into it. Don't believe in it. It's bullshit. Don't freaking do it. Now, there are things that are, would be considered more like a neighborhood covenant. All right. These are building restrictions and certain requirements that are set in stone. Everybody knows, knows the rules going in. They're not generally very um, restrictive. And you can live your life however you want once you meet those requirements. For instance, the place that we live requires any mobile home to be new, have a composite roof, be permanently affixed, and um, no permanent residence in any kind of an RV or anything like that, and no more than one occupied structure per five acres. That is kind of a going in requirement to, to construct a, a home there. And then there's no homeowner association. There's no board. There's no additional regulations. Everything is basically whatever the local laws and regulations and codes are after that. That's it. That I'm fine with. And you can make sure that somebody doesn't live in a tin shack with one of those. You don't need a freaking HOA. The question, and I'm sorry I'm being tough on the caller because I'm still aggravated about not the last caller, but the question that was presented to the last caller. But the question's almost dumb. I, I'm sorry, but it is. Like, how can you have a community without an HOA? They're all over the freaking place. They're all over the place. There's, there's plenty of places where people have a few acres, there's lots of houses, everything's nice, and there's no freaking HOA. There's plenty of places like that. This shit where there's no place left without HOA is just dumb. It just means you're looking in the wrong place. Try this. Tell your agent, if it says freaking HOA, don't show me the property. And all of a sudden, they'll start shitting you some properties. Don't have HOAs. Having a community does not necessitate having a community government. And let me explain to you the problem with HOAs. Let me explain this to you. I'll explain it with a question first and then I'll elaborate. Tell me a government of any sort put in place that did not grow in size, scope, and infringement of liberties over time. Tell me any government that meets that criteria. And if you need me to play Jeopardy music, you're not a student of history because the answer is there ain't one. The United States federal government was a little tiny organization when our country was founded and is now a giant monstrosity. There are city, township, county governments all over the place that even 20 years ago are relatively benign, small government entities that did their duty and took care of certain things that needed to be done and had a purpose that have grown into monstrosities, overgrown beasts, and infringed upon liberties. An HOA is a government. Okay? That's what you have to understand. It's a government. It has the ability to use force 
to, com to make people comply with decisions made without their consent. It's the very nature of a government. We have too much government. Don't add another layer to your life. You don't do that. I almost can't answer the the question of how do you have community without you know how do you how do I justify saying you need a community to survive and then say stay away from HOAs because it's it's just like saying how do you justify saying you need potassium and then saying don't eat bananas because they're full of sugar as though that the only possible way that I can obtain potassium is through a banana. I mean it, it's just it doesn't the two don't mesh. So I, if you want to do it and you want to live there and you understand the restrictions and you're okay with them, go ahead. But if you're miserable a year or two or three from now, don't say I didn't warn you because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The freaking anal retentive blue hair old ladies and like the 40-something IT anal freaking just you make you, you know the guy you want to fire but he does a good job on your server so you don't. Those are the people that become members of HOA boards. And they have nothing better to do with their time than worry about shit. And they always come up with new ideas. And they always have the ability to influence the majority of people that move to such a place that are all people that don't belong there. Look, this is the problem, especially these HOAs out in the country, as you say. These freaking people sit in the suburbs and go, I hate this. And then they move out in the country and go, I don't want a cow around me. I don't want, I don't want chickens. Like, that, that guy has a shed. I don't want a shed. And those people need to move their ass back to the suburbs and stay there until you figure out that what you were leaving doesn't need to be recreated. There's a reason that you left. And I don't give a shit that you wanted a million-dollar house. If you want a million-dollar house, don't build yourself a million-dollar house surrounded by a bunch of other people that don't want million-dollar houses. And then bitch that their house lowers your house's freaking value. And that's what you'll get. That's what you'll get with an HOA. What will end up happening is, we don't, we don't like that guy's shed. Uh, but we didn't have a thing in the original thing, so we'll, we'll, maybe we even have to let him go. Now we'll put a new thing. Any new sheds have to get approval from the board, and they'll get a vote for yes on it, because everybody that doesn't like the shed will vote yes. And most of the people that don't give a shit won't even pay attention to anything's going on, because they don't think anything's going on, because nobody stepped on their face yet. Right? HOAs suck, 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 suck. All right? And that's the answer you'll get every time you ask me about it. And if you want another layer of government in your life, if you want people telling you, oh, before you build a fence, Mr. Smith, please come to us and present us with uh, a layout of the fence. We'd like a sample of the material that's going to be used to build the fence. We'd like to know the height of the fence. We'd like to know how long the construction will take. Will you be using concrete footers or not? Uh, how how much noise will, will, the, will the fence construct? cause and, and what is your plan to maintain the fence uh, make sure we know what color it's going to be is it going to be the same material uh, on the back fence line is it on the front line what kind of gate what kind of gate are you this is the shit you'll deal with right you want chickens I'm sorry that's not allowed that's not allowed oh we, we, we didn't say that wasn't allowed we're going to have to take a vote on this and, and we'll let you know Uh, let's take a, okay, no, we've banned chickens now. That's, that's, that's what you're gonna deal with. That will always be the result of an HOA. And even if it doesn't start out that way, that's what it will always turn into. Because only people that think that way want to be in governmental positions. 
And an HOA is a tiny government for tiny-minded tyrants who can't actually break into the big leagues to exercise that kind of control over their neighbors. Nobody that really wants to just be left alone wants to do that job. Government attracts bureaucratic-minded individuals, and bureaucratic-minded individuals always want to control other people. You want an HOA from Jack Spirico, here's what it would be. No one's allowed to bitch about anything. If you have a problem, talk to your neighbor, see if you can work it out. And if you can't, tough shit. If it doesn't violate a law, we have enough government, go away. And if you don't like it, don't move here. That would be my HOA. That's my thoughts. I don't give a damn about HOAs. You can put a gate around a community without an HOA as well. It's just a community piece of property. It doesn't require that you tell somebody what kind of car they can park in their garage, what kind of shed they can build, or what type of fence they can build. You don't move to the country to get out of the city, to get away from restrictions, to let some blue-haired old lady or some whiny, snivelly little middle-aged man with a pot belly and a bald-ass head that doesn't know his ass from a chicken tell you you can't have one. And if you do it, you made a stupid decision, and it's not one I would justify. But if you're happy, that's fine. But you probably won't be in the end. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Andy Williams in South Carolina. I was just listening to a previous call-in show, and a guy called in also from South Carolina about um, catching catching baby wild pigs, and um, just had a couple comments about and fattening them up. Had a couple comments about that because we did that this year. Um, we bought uh, at a great price five uh, feral hogs, um, pretty small, and um, fattened them up. And just wanted to make your caller aware when you when you we learned it after the fact, uh, from an old-timer in our area um, before we butchered him. And um, when you fatten these wild hogs on, you know, a lot of corn or commercial hog feeds, um, if you don't have a lot of your own stuff um, to feed them, they make so much fat. It all turns to fat. It was incredible when we took uh, skin these, these hogs how much fat we got. As a matter of fact, I rendered um, over 10 gallons or maybe closer to 12 gallons of lard off of five hogs. Um, and the meat was very slim. So when it's compared to like a heritage breed, you do not get your money's worth if you're, if you're wanting meat. Now, if you're wanting lard, um, that's a great thing to do. But I uh, just wanted to <laughs> shed a little bit of experience um, this, this very year about that, that uh, feral hog uh, situation. So, all right, thanks for all you do, Jack. Bye-bye. Yeah, and I, I think that's mostly due to the type of feed that you were giving them there. And I don't think it's a reason to not, you know, get young feral hogs and, and raise them. I think it's a reason to not feed them commercial feed. Um, I, this is what we have to understand about feral hogs. They're almost all uh, carrying a lot of genes around from domestic breeds that, you know, eventually escape. That's where most of them came from. There's very few feral hogs in the U.S. that are really um, high genetic count, uh, pure Russian boar strain hogs. Most of them are uh, different breeds, different types of hogs that have escaped and begin to revert back. And what you find with hogs is even they're pink, you know, typical uh, mass production hogs that escape three or four generations in, they're they're turning black and spotted and going back and reverting, and they do it very very quickly. And the pig is not meant to eat corn and soy. Let me say it again: the pig is not meant to eat corn and soy. They can, they can do it, and we've bred in 
genetic characteristics to these animals feeding on soy and corn, etc., that allows them to put on a lot of size, a lot of fat, but a lot of bulk protein as well on a diet like that. And as soon as that animal goes two or three generations of outbreeding into other animals who have already been living in uh, these type of uh, wild environments, that goes away because it's a poor quality gene. And in some ways, it's bad code. As I steal a term from one of my new favorite shows, Person of Interest, it's bad code. So it writes itself out of the program, so to speak, very, very quickly. Now, how can we address this? Feed them acorns. Feed them pasture. Feed them what they would eat in the wild. Let them grow at the moderate growth rate that a pig is designed to grow at, and you're going to get a pig very similar to taking an adult feral pig, but with quite a bit more fat marbled into it, which will be exactly what you want. And I played this call for a couple of reasons. One, so I could respond that way. Two, because it's follow-up to another call, and I love those. But three, it gives me an opportunity to introduce something to you um, that I am loving. A listener sent me a little blurb and said, go watch this one episode of this new series by the BBC called Wartime Farm. And when I saw it, I'm like, I want to watch the whole thing. Start episode one. I think they have up to the first seven episodes on YouTube right now. I'll put a link in the show notes. Today. I'm going to build a playlist uh, for you guys as well on my channel of this. But the whole premise is that these three historians move into a farm Uh, in, in southern England that was pushed by the war ag to produce more food and dealt with rationing, dealt with bombings, dealt with all the crap that came with World War II, had to make work with, you know, with what they had. You know, most of the blacksmiths are gone off to war. Most of the other laborers are gone. So the farmers stuck doing everything. They're using old forts and tractors and all. And they have these heavy, heavy duty meat rationing. And the farmers were encouraged to, to grow almost no meat because it was better seen as to produce cereal grains and such, because basically the whole country was on a survival uh, mode, survival ration, and it was more direct application of calories. And that was the mentality there, so that you could only grow so much. And if you were growing meat, you didn't get to keep it. You basically had to give it over to, to the, the food police, who then put it through the system, and you could buy back your own ration. And there's a little cheating here and there, but this is the whole scenario. But one of the things that was highly encouraged was for people to form pig clubs. So two or three families would get together, and they would, instead of having you know one farm have 20 or 30 pigs being grown, the, the families would grow all their grains and stuff like that, or dairy was seen as very, very important. So replace that with a dairy operation. And then three families would put the pig in one pigsty, And they would all save all their garden and kitchen scraps and feed the pig with all the leftovers uh, as slop to hogs. And then the pig would be slaughtered. And because they grew the pig, the, the members of the pig club, each family would get uh, to split up evenly 50% of the pig. And the other 50% of the pig would go into the war rationing system. And they had to have a police officer come and oversee the slaughter and the butchering of the hog to make sure there was no cheating, and license this pig so that it could go back to the people who grew it. So there's a lot of lessons there. One, those pigs were not being fed big buckets of corn and, and, and soy, right? They were being fed mostly the vegetation that was left over from cooking and gardening and things like that, and they fattened up quite nicely, And they, the, the people were just desperate for fat at the time, especially animal fats. So it was a source of that. 
Um, and they did very, very well that way. Uh, they might have took a little bit longer than giving them a straight hog feed, but they did well. And that's a, a lesson we can learn. But the other thing is, I think we should all watch this because it shows us what really happened when the shit did in fact hit the fan in a country. And we have this propensity as preppers to think about what if this, what if that, what if this, and instead of going, when this happened, what was life like? And even though England was never directly invaded, they were bombed, and they were damn near starved to death by a blockade. This is an amazing, amazing series put out by the BBC. And it's kind of like a reality show with all the rea without all the reality show bullshit in it. You get the feeling these guys probably have a ham hoagie once in a while. Uh, but they stay in period dress. They have the inspector come in and inspect their farm and grade it. But it's not being done like it's a bunch of actors, like it's real and you're going to get voted off the island or something. He's you know, talking to them in, in two sets of, of, of tone. One is as a guy that's like a historian and advisor and knew how things went and is very jovial and then saying, but based on my knowledge of history, this is what the, the war ag would have told you. And seeing consequences and the generators they use, the paraffin stuff. This thing is freaking awesome. As soon as it's available on DVD, I'm buying it and I'm adding it to my long-term collection. I have a friend from England named Neil Franklin. I've mentioned before. I emailed him about the other day. I said, you need to watch this. This is the history of your country. And a couple of your children are a little bit older. You need to sit down with them and, 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 and show them their own, their own history. And boy, filmmakers in America, isn't there an opportunity for something like this to be done here? This country wasn't put under the same level Uh, of stress. In fact, we were a big part of who fed the other allies and supplied the other allies and had men that were willing to, not just military men, but merchant marines that were willing to risk the blockades. But this country made some real sacrifices too. And a really interesting look at 1940s farm life in America from a couple different standpoints could make a couple different really great series. Um, I think we have a lot to learn from the British about making quality programming. You look at this, it's kind of a sort of reality TV thing, and you compare it to something like Jersey Shore, and you just feel like, man, we're not getting it done. We're not getting it done. Check this thing out again. Wartime Farm, I'll post a link to at least like the first episode, and you can find all the other episodes from there. Uh, let's take, I think, one more call I've got today, uh, and uh, then we'll move on and uh, wrap the show up. Hey, Jack, it's Adam in Texas. Question for you. What do you think about diesel vehicles right now? Uh, I'm, in the I'm in the market for a new car, and, you know, the spread between regular unleaded gas right now and diesel uh, in this area is running about 50 cents or so a gallon. Um, so even though they've got an MPG advantage, Um, you know, you're paying up for the for the diesel, but I do wonder if in a uh, in some kind of a scenario where there is a fuel disruption, um, you know, I'm thinking that diesel might possibly be a little more available than gasoline would be. Um, anyway, I just wanted to see what your thoughts were uh, on a strict numbers basis. 
Uh, I don't know if it works, but there are other factors to consider. And I just wanted to get your comments on it. I know you've got the old, uh, you still got your old TDI and you've been a big advocate of it. But if you were in the market to buy a new vehicle today, basically would you prefer a, uh, you know, a high mileage gasoline engine? And, you know, something that gets on the order of, say, 40 miles per gallon or so. Or uh, go ahead and get, uh, you know, a turbo diesel type that might get a little bit better, but you uh, also have to pay up for that fuel. Anyway, appreciate it. Love the show. Uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Oh, it's a great question on diesels. Um, here, here's the, There's two sides of this to look at here. And beyond, uh, you know, one is the cost analysis and the fuel cost analysis. The other thing is longevity and reliability, dependability, and future for diesel-style fuels. Okay, so let's start out with just the, the basic numbers comparison on the fuel without looking at the premium on the vehicle and how long it takes to, to pay that off. But the reality is that in almost every case, if you run the numbers, the premium on diesel is more than made up for in the, uh, the greater mileage. Uh, that the vehicle produces. And this is particularly the case in cars like the Volkswagen Jetta that I have or the Passat. If I was in the market for a new car, I would probably step up from the Jetta to the Passat and I would probably buy uh, a Volkswagen Passat diesel. And until, and I, I like Ford. I mean, Ford is kind of my go-to with the American car manufacturers now. But when it comes to a diesel car, until Ford makes a really good one and markets it in America, the Passat is the best value for the money. And the premium on a diesel motor and a Passat over a gas motor is not that high. But what you will find, though, is that when you go to your Volkswagen dealer and you want the Passat or the Jetta diesel or the Bug diesel or whatever, um, they go, okay, there's the price, and here's their standard financing. And you go, but I want to make a deal. And they go, we don't want to make a deal. And if you go to the, buy the gas Passat, they start throwing out 2.9% financing, or we can do a $2,000 cash rebate or something like that. The diesel vehicles today still are so valued by customers that the dealers can hold their line on the price, hold their margins on the price, and get them. And that should tell you something. It's not just because they're cool or anything like that. Nobody goes, oh, man, you got a Passat diesel, man. You're rad. There's no kids out there saying that. They, they, it's, it's, a, it's about a, a quality of, uh, of, of product premium value that people are willing to pay for. And that says something about it. When you see huge premiums is when we look in the pickup truck market. You could look at a pickup truck that would sell for $30,000 and a diesel version of it might sell for $45. That's a, that's a huge premium. And in that size vehicle, you're probably not going to get enough fuel economy, um, cause they've gotten really good at efficiencies with, with modern gas motors, uh, to, to really make up that much of a difference in miles per gallon, maybe a little bit here and there. But what's the truck for? If it's for hauling and pulling, gas is shit compared to diesel. It really is. But then there's the other side of it. You have to ask yourself, am I buying this vehicle to drive it for three or four years and trade it in? Or am I going to buy this vehicle, pay it off, and drive it for five or ten years after I pay it off? Even if I'm going to finance it. Because while I'm not in love with the idea, I can see financing a, a vehicle. Um, you know, maybe three or four years versus five or what have you. But I, I can understand why people do it. So am I going to pay this thing off in three or four years and then drive it for another ten? Buy a diesel. Because it'll last. It, it'll still be running. It, you, I know people with a half a million miles or more 
on these little Jetta diesels. I know one guy on a forum, he just posted, just crossed 900,000 miles. Now, there's some gas vehicles out there that have, have held with that, but there's nowhere near the number. Um, and everything you do to make a diesel motor more powerful, the, it improves longevity. Turbocharge a gas motor. It goes faster, it makes more horsepower, and you've just cut its life expectancy. Turbocharge a diesel motor. It increases its power, uh, it increases its torque, and you've just increased its life expectancy. You know, same with intercoolers and things like that. It's like everything you can do to make a diesel perform better without getting into chips and tinkering with stuff that should be left alone, this the overall macro view, it improves the performance of uh, the diesel motor. So to me, the diesel's about reliability, longevity, now availability. Uh, that's very, very subjective to look at because this is the reality. Right now, gas is more available than diesel. Uh, one of the things you have to become conscious of, of a diesel, of owning a diesel vehicle, especially like on long trips and what have you, uh, if you don't have a significant backup fuel source, um, where's the next, you know, place that has diesel fuel? And generally in more rural areas, most service stations have diesel as an option, but I've seen plenty of times where I drive by a place and They have gas, but they're out of diesel because they only run one tank, one pump of diesel. If you live somewhere where there's a lot of truck stops, that's somewhat mitigated, is it not? So it's all depending. Uh, if you get into a really long-term, uh, you know, peak oil scenario, um, it is much easier, much easier to make biodiesel than ethanol. It's a much more productive pursuit, and it might be the way things went in the future, but, man, you're that's not why I would make the decision. I would make the decision from reliability and dependability and overall cost. If I have to pay a premium on a vehicle of a couple thousand dollars when I'm in a car class of vehicles, I'll do it. With a brand new pickup truck, I'm paying $15,000, $20,000 in some cases. I probably wouldn't do it. But here's my response to that. I wouldn't buy the new truck. You know, I bought a 2005 uh, Ford F-350 with a great diesel motor in it. And it's kind of a work truck as far as its interior amenities and everything, but it's in great shape. It runs great. It fires up every time. Now it has over 100,000 miles on it. It had like 80 when I bought it. I paid $19,000 for that truck. That truck sold new for $45,000 if it was a dollar. So... And that's the other side of diesel. If you go buy a gas pickup truck with 80 or 120,000 miles on it, it's had a significant portion of its life expectancy used. You go buy a diesel with 100,000 miles on it, a truck, as far as the engine's concerned, it's just getting broke in. I mean, you still have things like suspension and, and ball joints and all the other stuff that you know will need maintenance over the life of your vehicle. Um, but especially if you buy like a really heavy duty F250, F350, uh, the Dodge Cummins with the, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, 2500 class and above. Um, I mean, and then you don't really use it to its fullest potential. That extra strength results in extra longevity of key components. So that's why I've kind of taken this approach of a diesel car and a big tough diesel truck. I have kind of the best of both worlds there without, you know, and the two of them together cost less than you'd pay for the truck new. And I'll probably have the truck longer than the car. 
those are my thoughts, my personal choices. And as someone that worked on diesel vehicles in the military, um, I just have a, a, a true understanding of the advantages that are there. And it ain't just about miles per gallon. Uh, let's take, I got one more here uh, that somehow I, I skipped over. It's kind of an interesting call, and we'll wrap up. Hi, Jack. This is Cynthia calling from Dallas. I'd like to know something. Who are you, and why do you know so much about so many different topics? Uh, one minute you're explaining macro, microeconomics, and the next you're talking about guns and rep- weaponry then gardening, uh, then you follow up with a great recipe. I just don't understand who you are and why do you know so much about so many different topics. I've been listening to you for several months. You're fascinating, but I don't understand where you got this body of knowledge. Please explain. Thanks a lot. This is Cynthia calling from Dallas. Bye-bye now. It's not the first time uh, some form or flavor of this question has come in, and um, it's not one I generally like to answer a lot because it can come off somewhat as braggery or something like that when I sincerely answer the question. And I'm, you know, despite my assertiveness and... uh, confidence in what I tell you when it comes down to it. I'm a pretty humble guy. I don't like to go out and say, I'm great. I just like to say, I know this stuff. Uh, I think those are two very different things. But um, I actually did an episode that, you know, instead of going on for too long here at the end of today's show, you can go listen to it. It was called Episode 521, Why I Think the Way I Do. And uh, it explained a lot about my background and why I know the things I do and why I think the way that I do. Um, but I, I understand And it's something I've dealt with, with sometimes people getting the wrong idea, like this guy thinks he knows everything, because you bring a subject up and I can discuss it, and discuss it fairly in depth. And I guess my name's Jack, because I have followed the path of a jack of all trades and and, and master of none. I want to be able to do a pretty good job at just about anything there is to do. I want to have a diversified skill set, a diversified knowledge set. Uh, And, uh, you know, here's where it sounds a little bit, you know, braggish, and I, I don't want to do it, but it's I, I can't answer it without saying it. I have a very high IQ, and, and I won't give you a number, but it's 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 significant uh, above the the average. And in two different proctored exams within three points of each other, and it is not so much because I um, can do Einstein mathematics or anything like that because I can't because I don't care. It's my ability to retain information. And it's part of why, like I've said before, I don't listen to a lot of talk shows or a lot of other podcasts. If I, if I listen to people, I will completely absorb what they've said and I'll be able to, to say it back. When I was a kid in school, uh, and I didn't understand that this was a gift. I just thought it was the way people were supposed to be. I thought like all the kids in school were just dumb. I really did because the teacher would tell us to read a chapter in the book. And I would open it up, and I don't read like lightning or speed or anything, but I read pretty fast. And I'd read the chapter in the book, and I'd sit the book down, and you'd get the whole, Mr. Spierko, are you done? Well, yeah. Are you sure? Do you think you need to read it some more? No, we can, you know, 
And then you'd start getting into the point where they start, we started to discuss it and they started asking questions and I was the only one that knew the answers to any of the questions. And it's like, wow, you're really smart. We just, we just, we just read it. How, I don't understand how everybody doesn't know. There's like 10 paragraphs long and, you know, we just read it like five minutes ago. And I didn't get that everybody didn't have that recall ability. So I don't have a photographic memory, but I don't almost have what I would call almost an audiographic memory. And what I mean by that is it's not the right term because that would literally mean if you said something, I could remember it like a tape recorder, and I can't. I can't remember it if you say it unless I'm really interested in it, and I basically repeat it in my own mind. When I read, that's how I read. It's it, it's It's not just, you know as though you're reading, I think, the way most people do. And I really have no frame of reference, so I don't know if this is true, but I think when most people read, at the intellectual level, it's an absorption of the information uh, without an audible component. I don't think people really tend to hear uh, words when they're reading for themselves. I do. I hear my own voice as though I'm talking when I read. I hear, when I read well-written work, tone, inflection, um, I hear... And not my voice, but my ideas of what a character's voice is like. And because of that, when I try to recall that information, it's much more real to me, I think, than it is to other people. So that allows me that once I take knowledge in to be able to not just repeat it, but use it. And what that lets me do is when you show me something and go, what's the solution here? And, and I give you one, and it's a really good solution. And you think, well, he just had that in his back pocket. I didn't. I didn't at all. I had four other things that were related to it, and I take the knowledge from those four things, and I apply them to the problem, and I work out the solution as a troubleshooting operation, which is something the military taught me with being a mechanic, and I come up with a plausible solution to the problem based on prior knowledge and experience. And I can do that because I retain the information. And it's really about information retention and practical application. And then, you know, I was unemployable. I didn't like working for people, so I never kept a job for very long. So I did a bunch of different things. I know how to run heavy equipment. I know how to locate underground utilities. I know how to, you know, terminate fiber optic cable, how to design fiber optic distribution systems. Those things may not seem directly related to, to you know, modern survivalism. You know how to work at heavy equipment. You understand contours and you understand uh, the capabilities of a, of a track host. So you know what can be done with, with earthworks. It doesn't matter that it was only being used to dig up gas pipes and, and, and phone lines. Um, and it, this wide, varied experience and this retention ability, I think, is is what it is. And my wife tells me all the time, if I get frustrated with somebody, she's like, you have to remember not everybody's as smart as you are. And I'm like, I'm not smart. And I, I don't really think I'm, I'm smart. And I, I know that sounds like, you know, false humility, but I don't. I don't think of myself as so much smart. I just think of myself as someone that applies common sense and has a gift to be able to remember. So I think that... Most people, if I gave them all, if you gave the same person the same problem, and before I gave you the answer, I said, here's five different things in my life that happened that I'm thinking about right now. And you thought about them and you took them in. And then you looked at the problem, you'd probably come to a very similar solution. It's because I have the experience in the background and the retention ability to do that. And here's why I don't think I'm smart. A smart person can learn calculus. 
I can't. Don't give a shit. I am not smart in my view because I can't learn anything that I don't care about at all, even a little bit. I, I If I pick up a book about a subject and I think it's going to be interesting and I get to like the second page and I'm bored, I can't continue. I'm wasting my time. I'll never remember it. I don't care. I don't care. And that made me a pretty poor student, a pretty poor uh, candidate for college. But I think it makes me a pretty good uh, modern renaissance man, I guess. you know. Um, and the reason, and this is the secret, if you want to sound intelligent, only talk about things you know about. Um, if you, you if you do that, you'll find you know about a lot more than you think you do. And you, you'll always sound like you know what you're talking about because you do. And then there's another thing to this. So I've been doing this four and a half years now. The education I've gotten by teaching is is probably bigger than the education I've delivered. And you got to understand that, you know, you listen to the show and we have a guest on and you get a lot out of it, but I'm actually talking to that guest. I'm actually talking to that guest for maybe uh, a, a two or three times before the episode airs. I'm talking to that guest after the episode. I'm chit-chatting with them, you know, for 10, 15 minutes to get some things clarified that are way personal that I wouldn't put on the air because you wouldn't care. And then that information is more personal for me. And then I get a guest and I look at it and go, this guest wants to talk about, you know, whatever it is. And I go, I don't really know a lot about that. So I'll spend a week investigating that information before I interview the guest so that I can do an informed interview and not be some dumbass like the people on TV. And there's just, there's just now almost five years of that on top of all of this other stuff. So that's, that's why. And, and I hope that nobody thinks, that like I think I'm smarter than they are. If if I thought I was smarter than everybody else, if I was arrogant like that, there wouldn't be an expert counsel. There wouldn't be a guest. Though the show started, you know, for the first two years, it was just me. There weren't even call-ins because I couldn't I couldn't logistically make that happen. Um, the guests, the calls, the interviews, the expert counsel were all places where people would say, "What about this?" And I'd go, "Give you my thoughts, but I don't really know." Let's go get somebody that knows. So a lot of times I think there's a transference issue where because I brought Stephen Harris on, you think I know as much as he does about hydrogen? I don't. I never will. I'm not that interested in it. I know it's not really a viable solution for me. So at that point, I don't care anymore. You know, and I, but I think maybe on some, some levels, I know more about the practical application of solar power because I'm not so against the damn technology. Um, but it's not me. It's, it's, it's you guys. I know as much as I do in essence because you guys keep asking, you keep making me stretch, you keep making me think, you keep challenging me. That's why I love what I do. If I ever stop getting challenged, I'm going to get bored. I don't want to get bored. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And with that note, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget are what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better
Yeah.